Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We are on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to speak with Austin Walker. Welcome to the podcast, Austin. Thank you very much for your invitation. Yes, uh, it's it a great is. a privilege to be here. It is our privilege to get to uh, talk with you today. Um, I was mentioning to our brother Austin beforehand that I have been greatly benefited by his book, The Excellent Benjamin Keach. Uh, this is the second edition. He mentioned to me that this book is almost 20 years old now. I know many people have been greatly uh, benefited by this volume, but this edition is not the topic of our conversation today. Uh, as you clicked on this podcast episode, you likely noticed that we're going to be talking about Robert Hall Jr. And that is because our brother has written a book that is soon to be released by Hesed and Amet Publishing. Our brother has a copy of it, The Theology of Robert Hall Jr., The Undermining of Calvinism Among the English Particular Baptists. Um, I'll be excited whenever I get a copy of that in my hands, uh, and we would encourage our listeners to pick up a volume uh as well, and to read this for yourselves. But before we begin to get into the life and theology of Robert Hall Jr., brother, you are a first-time interviewee on our show, so can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, I'll just say that the official publication date for the book is tomorrow, so it should be available tomorrow, <laughs> Amazon and anywhere else. Okay, well, my name is Austin Walker. Uh, I was born in London, uh, immediately after the Second World War. So I'm part of the baby boomer generation. Uh, I studied in the University of Wales in Aberystwyth, uh, where a certain gentleman by the name of Geoffrey Thomas became uh, the pastor of Alfred Place Baptist Church, and he became my mentor. Uh, now, he had graduated from Westminster Seminary, and I followed him. And from 1968 to 1971, I was a student at Westminster Seminary. Then I became a pastor, returned to the UK and became pastor in Crawley. And I served there for 40 plus years before retiring uh, in March 2018. But you better put retire in inverted commas. <laughs> uh, because uh, we, now, we now live, I now live with my wife. Uh, in Derby, in the Midlands, in the East Midlands. We're members of Castlefield's Church in Derby, and uh, I am still busy preaching. Uh, I preach more or less once a month in Crawley, in Crawley, in Castlefield's Church. I'm still writing books and articles, I do book reviews, and I'm still busy ministering. Uh, so it's retirement in inverted commas. But, uh, you know, we have four children that are all following the Lord. Uh, we have 10 grandchildren, some of whom have professed faith in Christ. Uh, and they are all busy in their, our children are all busy in their churches uh, where they labor. So I've, that gives you some idea of who I am. <laughs> Yes, Austin, we are so grateful to have you on our show today. Um, as, as we said, even off camera, it's been an absolute 
privilege to hear how you have blessed the local church that I'm a member of currently and where I'm serving in an interim role in SeaTac, Washington. I know that there are probably many other congregations uh, on your side of the pond and, and even over here in the United States who would say the exact same thing. So we praise God for your life, for your ministry, for how the Lord's working in your family um, in these days. But I'm also confident that uh, there's also some of our listeners who are fond of your expertise and particular Baptist history, as Austin has noted as well, your impact on him. And uh, if you know anything about our show, or if you don't know anything about our show, Austin, um, we have a lot of discussions on particular Baptist history. We've had discussions on men like Andrew Fowler, Benjamin Keach, John Gill, William Kiffin, and even James Pettigrew Boyce, but we've never discussed Robert Hall Jr. And uh, just... It, admittedly, I, I I couldn't tell you anything about Robert Hall Jr. So I'm going to be learning just as much today as a as a co-host as our listeners will be as well. So maybe as we transition now into the bulk of our conversation, would you be willing to just give us a biographical sketch of Robert Hall Jr.'s life and and, and maybe set the context for where we'll be headed in the remainder of our time together today? Sure. Well, Junior was born in nine, at 19, 17, sorry, 64, and he died in 1831. He was the youngest son of Robert Hall Sr. Now, Robert Hall Sr. was a key figure in particular Baptist history. He was a contemporary with John Ryland Sr. and John Ryland Jr., and a contemporary, of course, of Andrew Fuller and William Carey. So you're back with the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. Uh, that would have been Robert Hall's background. Uh, as far as Robert Hall Jr. was concerned, he was very a very gifted and a very capable man. Uh, he learned to read by being taken into the graveyard uh, of his father's church and uh, the the lady who was responsible for him the nurse who was responsible she taught him to read from the gravestones and he picked up reading and he was he was a precociously brilliant child uh, he did spend some time with john ryland senior uh, but most of the people who tried to teach him he outstripped them you know and he had to move on uh, they had to find someone else who could take him a step further. He, you know, he learned Greek, he learned Hebrew, he learned Latin. He was reading Jonathan Edwards before he was 10. Uh, that was the kind of person that he was, a uh, very gifted man. Uh, he professed faith at the age of 14. And at the age of 16, he was set aside by the church to preach. Now, that wasn't that unusual in those days to set some aside so young. John Ryland Jr. was also set aside at a very young age. And of course, Spurgeon, much later, uh, he was preaching by the time he was 16. Um, now, John, uh, sorry, Robert Hall Jr. ended up at Bristol Baptist College. That was where he was sent to be trained. Uh, Caleb Evans, a Welshman, he was the principal of uh, the Bristol Baptist Academy. 
and in he equipped Robert Hall to go to Aberdeen University because Hall was a dissenter, Oxford and Cambridge would have been closed to him. So he ended up going to Aberdeen and he graduated from Aberdeen in 1785. He then came back to Bristol uh, Academy as a tutor in classics. Uh, and he preached in the church in Broadmead, which was attached, well, the, the academy was attached to Broadmead Church. That was a Reformed Baptist church, a 1689 church. He was the co-pastor uh, there. But it wasn't long after he was there. He was to leave in 1791. So you're talking about six years. In that six-year period, there be, began to be suspicions in the congregation about his orthodoxy. Uh, he was, we'll come, we'll come to that later on, but there were very real suspicions and they deepened and eventually ended up in a conflict between him and Caleb Evans. In a moment of anger, Robert Hall Jr. had said to Caleb Evans, you're a Calvinist, I'm not. Uh, He's very blunt about it. Uh, in a saner moment where he was a bit more calm, he said, I'm not a Calvinist like my father. So there were questions and queries over his orthodoxy. Uh, but he left in 1791. He took it upon himself to leave and he went to, to, to be the pastor in a church in Cambridge. And it was there that he began to emerge as a famous writer and a preacher because he, he took on the, uh, the elite academics of Cambridge. He read extensively, he answered them, he began to write and his writings were made public. And he, he became a, a vigorous opponent of the slave trade. He'd started that in Bristol, admittedly, because Bristol was one of the centers of uh, shipping. Uh, but he left, as I say, in 1791, he went to Cambridge, but he suffered. He overdid it. He was single. He wasn't married. He overdid it. He overworked. He was reading for 12, 14 hours a day uh, and immersing himself. And he suffered two breakdowns, two mental breakdowns in 1804 and 1805, which led to his resignation in 1806. He also had a, a, an acute kidney problem. Uh, after he died, they did a post-mortem on him and they found kidney stones, which had arrow, effectively arrow points on them. So, you know, he was in agony for a lot of his life and he depended on, on opium, which was a standard painkiller of the day uh, for much of his life. The interesting thing is, although he had professed faith at the age of 14, as a consequence of these breakdowns and his gradual return to a normal state of health, he believed he was converted at that point. He doesn't comment on it very much, but that's his conviction. Most of his contemporaries thought he was talking nonsense. They could not believe that that was the case. but. That was his own statement. And I think it has to be believed. 
from Cambridge, he ended up in Leicester. In fact, he was became the pastor of Carey's former congregation in Leicester. And uh, on the advice of doctors, he married and he took up pipe smoking. That was recommended for his health. Uh, I'm not sure it did him any good, but that was the recommendation of the day. Uh, at the beginning of that period in Leicester, he solemnly dedicated himself to God. And he speaks there like a new man in that, at that point. Uh, but he became a famous preacher in Leicester. He remained there until 1825. So that was the probably the most substantial ministry that he undertook. Uh, people would, people like Thomas Chalmers from Scotland, would deliberately make a a journey. If they were going to London. They would deliberately go through Leicester in order to hear this man preach. I mean, he was a remarkable orator. There are records of him absolutely having a congregation transfixed. He would begin quietly, but as he rose in his eloquence and his oratorical skills, sometimes on occasions the congregation would stand up altogether, and then some would stand up on the seats, on the pews, absolutely leaning forward, absolutely enthralled with what the man was saying. That was his power as an orator. Now, that didn't happen every time he preached, obviously, but there are records of that kind of thing happening. After the death of John Ryland Jr., who was the principal, the president of the Bristol Baptist Academy in 1825, Robert Hall Jr. was invited to return to Bristol. And he preached there in Broadmead. He did not have a great deal to do with the academy. He was there principally as uh, the pastor of the congregation in Broadmead Church. And he was there for another six years. He died in 1831, greatly mourned, greatly missed, uh, because he was, I say, he was at his death. He was a very famous man. There were obituaries written all over the country. Uh, the book that I've written on the whole begins with one from a, I think he's an Anglican who was in Manchester, and it was written in the newspaper. All the major newspapers of the day carried obituaries of uh, Robert Hall. So, you know, it's quite clear that he was universally well known. Uh, there are some who would say that he was a celebrity, the first Baptist celebrity. Uh, he was famous all over the place. He, he's the kind of man who could have done anything and was shone anywhere. If he'd have been a member of parliament, he'd have shone in parliament. But he was a preacher. If he'd have been an Anglican, he'd probably been advanced to a, a bishop or an archbishop even. Uh, that's the kind of man that he was. So that gives you a brief sketch of this man. Uh, hmm. Yeah, this is, this is very helpful as we begin to consider Robert Hall Jr.'s uh, 
life and especially in your work, his theology. Um, and you alluded to this in your biographical sketch on Robert Hall Jr., some of his uh, formative upbringing influences, but we want to give you the opportunity to talk about who or what were some of his theological influences, uh, especially early in his life. Uh, I would say the two major influences were probably his father, uh, Robert Hall Sr., and John Collett Ryland, or John Ryland Sr. Both of those men, and particularly his father, had left hyper-Calvinism behind. Uh, they were no longer part of that. They had, Robert Hall Sr. particularly had been brought up in hyper-Calvinism, but he parted company with that. Uh, and Robert Hall Jr. therefore would have been brought up with the theology of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. He'd have been brought up with standard particular Baptist theology. And that would have been the five points that the five points of Calvinism were in the Northamptonshire Association uh, papers, uh, stating what they believed. The 1689 was sort of behind all that, but it was not that prominent, but the doctrines of grace clearly were. so he was brought up then within that Northamptonshire Association background. And uh, the statements, as I say, of the churches clearly, you know, make that quite clear that he was uh, it, within the particular Baptist setup. I mean, Fuller was there. Andrew Fuller was there. William Carey was there in his early days. Men like John Sutcliffe. He died prematurely, but he was there. Uh, these were prominent men, and these are the men who were setting the tone in particular Baptist circles. Uh, now, the one thing about Hall is it's very difficult to trace details. Uh, somewhere in the decade 1799, I would say, to 1809, was a watershed. Uh, Nowhere does Robert Hall systematically present what his early convictions were. It seemed to me that by the time he finished in Aberdeen, uh, he had become disillusioned with Calvinism. He spoke about frosty spirited Calvinists in Scotland, in Aberdeen, in the churches that he attended. And when he returned to Bristol, it's quite clear that there were significant departures from orthodoxy. Now, was that the influence of Aberdeen or his own thinking? Was he influenced by some of these men in Scotland? I have no way of knowing. I don't think we have any way of knowing because nowhere is is it recorded by him. And he would have been the only one who could tell us. Uh, his letters that he wrote back from Aberdeen to his father and John Collett Ryland, uh, they don't indicate a great deal other than that he was disillusioned with what he saw among the students and among the faculty uh, at Aberdeen. During those years that I mentioned, this, this period 
as he returned to Bristol, he came to the point where he rejected confessions of faith. He admired Richard Baxter, who was no friend of confessions of faith. That was his favorite author, if you like. He said he preferred Baxter above all else. People like John Owen, he got very annoyed with, <laughs> called him a massive, a continent of mud, <laughs> was the way he described some of uh, John Owen's writings. But certainly he came to the conclusion that he could not share all the Calvinistic beliefs of his father. Uh, he told the one occasion when he did let slip, as it were, make known what he believed, was in a letter that he wrote to the church in Bristol when he left in 1790. Uh, I, I've already quoted part of this. He was, he was not a Calvinist in the strict and proper sense of the term. He was not a Calvinist like his father. He came to believe in universal atonement, that Christ died for every single human being. Uh, we find that in his correspondence, and he maintained his belief in universal redemption all the way through his ministry. He believed it was the only basis for the free offer of the gospel. And that meant that the doctrine of election was something that came in after the atonement. That was uh, a decision made by God the Father after the atonement. It wasn't something that was uh, from eternity. Early on in his life, he became a what we call a materialist. That uh, we cease to be conscious after death until the resurrection. He abandoned that on the death of his father in 1791. But that is what he believed, but he never preached it. He was not persuaded in his early days, this period of original sin, of total depravity, uh, of the person. He believed in the perseverance of all the regenerate, but that's not the same as the perseverance of the saints elected before the foundation of this world. That was Baxter's teaching. Uh, he rejected the federal headship of Adam, the imputation of Adam's sin. Sin was something you did, uh, and it was something, therefore, that you were responsible that's what brings condemnation before God. There's not this link then with Adam and the imputation of Adam's sin to all his posterity. At some point also, he ceased to be a strictly Trinitarian because he did not believe in the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. He believed the Spirit was an impersonal power. But again, he came to reject that subsequently. But these were the things you can see this man was thinking out very clearly what he believed and what he did not believe. And it was quite a radical and serious departure from particular Baptist orthodoxy and biblical orthodoxy. There is a statement to the effect that he believed 
the Holy Spirit could be, be obtained by sincere and fervent prayers of the unregenerate. Now that tells you what his doctrine of sin was like. Uh, it was very, had a lot of shortcomings. So he, he is at this point a, a somewhat confused man. Is he an Arminian? Is he a Calvinist? Some of his biographers says he was more of a Calvinist than he wasn't an Arminian. But, you know, he is clear he is not following the path of orthodox Christianity. He's struggling. He is struggling. I think he was struggling too with justification because to him, justification was simply the forgiveness of sins. If you don't believe in the imputation of Adam's sin, you're unlikely to believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And there is no statement to that effect anywhere in his writings at this point and his sermons at this point. Uh, largely, he is rejecting the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, to us by faith. So he's struggling. I think the crucial thing with Robert Hall Jr. is that he was indecisive. He did not make clear either what he believed or did not believe. He preached, and you don't find any decisiveness in his preaching. Uh, and there is a, a letter which was published uh, in, a, in a magazine posthumously, which exposes that. I've described it in detail in my book. Uh, that he was not decisive enough. He spoke to people privately, and people picked up from him then perhaps what he believed, but he never preached those things publicly. Now, there are evidences in his later sermons that he preached uh, in Bristol. There are some evidences that uh, he made some changes back towards a more orthodox position. But there was never any public explanation on his part. There was never any apology on his part, and never any description of the changes that had taken place. So it becomes very difficult. The problem with Robert Hall Jr. is what he doesn't say, not what he does say. And that makes it very difficult to pinpoint, you know, precisely what he believed at various stages in his life. But early on, he was clearly not orthodox at all. He had wandered a long, long way away from what he had been taught as a child, um, taught in the catechisms and so on. So that gives you some idea of the kind of man. You're dealing with a moving target, really. That's, that's the difficulty with him. It's a moving target and you think, oh, where, where, where can I find this? Where can I find him making a clear statement? You can't find it. No, that's, hit, very, yeah, that's, that's a very helpful way of putting it, Brother Austin, a moving target, because we've covered a lot of ground on some of the theological aberrations of Robert Hall Jr. But as as we know, in the, the, the new book that you have set to release tomorrow, uh, as you noted, uh, that, that subtitle is The Undermining of Calvinism among the English particular uh, English particular Baptists. So let's focus on his Calvinism uh, or lack thereof for, for a few moments. 
What what would you say that Robert Hall Jr.'s influence was like upon others in his day as he began this departure from his Calvinistic upbringings and in the heritage of Calvinism that he was clearly reared in as a young man? Uh, would you be able to tease out maybe how uh, his departure also influenced others in that particular regard? Jerry, that's a very difficult question to answer, <laughs> because simply because uh, we don't have all the records of his private conversations. If we did, we'd have a much, much clearer picture. We don't have any public statements by him. And his sermons, as I said before, are so indecisive. But he was part of a general drift. There were other men who were also turning away from Calvinism. Uh, it was part of the, the age, you know, we're coming into the age of romanticism and an increasing subjectivism and a questioning, you know, the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, you're in an age of Unitarianism. Joseph Priestley was a very prominent man. Uh, Hall Jr. had no time for Unitarianism. Uh, John Ryland was suspicious early on that he was drifting into Unitarianism and Andrew Fuller was concerned. They wrote to him and he did write back and say, I have nothing to do with Unitarianism. He did make some unwise statements, but it, it's very difficult to determine. It's interesting. He had a lot to do. He, he greatly respected William Carey because he never had a chance to talk to Carey because Carey never came back from India. But his nephew, Eustace, Carey went out to India to join his uncle. And Robert Hall had quite an influence on Eustace Carey. One of the things, one of the pieces of advice that he gave to uh, Eustace was don't get involved, don't get embroiled in the controversial things. And I think he by that meant some of the issues to do with Calvinistic theology. Just, just go and give them the Bible. Just go and give them, you know, the fundamentals of the faith. Well, that's all very well and good. But he was already, he was having that kind of influence on a man who was going out to be a missionary, to be a preacher. In the 18, where are we? I can't remember the date. Probably 1815, 1820, somewhere in that period, a young man from Scotland wrote to him, Robert Barmer. Robert Barmer wanted to know about the extent of the atonement. And what, what did Hall believe about this? Hall wrote back to him and said, unequivocally, universal redemption. And he recommended some of the New England theologians uh, for him to read on that subject. And because they were not orthodox in their kind, they were not orthodox like Jonathan Edwards Sr. was. Uh, some of these men have, have drifted away. Um, now, it's interesting, Robert Barmer subsequently became a teacher of theology in the United Presbyterian Church, I think, in Scotland, and he was tried for heresy. Now, the trial uh, was not, or the prosecution was not successful, but some of the views that he held, I think he'd picked them up from Robert Hall, particularly Universal Atonement. So, you know, he did have 
an influence, but it's very difficult to pinpoint it. I think maybe after his death, I mean, his volumes, six volumes of his work in the UK and four volumes in America, those works were published for about 20, 30 years. Now, if people read them, they would come away with a indecisive theological statements. You would not have picked up what this man really believed. So it was a dumbing down of the distinctives, if you like, of orthodox or historic biblical Christianity. I think he dumbed, he dumbed them down, and he did it in a way which was quite dangerous because it's, as I said before, it's not what the man said, it's what he didn't say that is so important. I mean, if you preached as he did in Leicester for those 20 odd years, and he preached a sermon on justification, did the people who heard him preach on justification realize that he was only preaching part of the doctrine? If he was emphasizing just forgiveness of sins, was he also preaching the imputed righteousness of Christ? It does not appear. So for two decades, you know, a generation of Christians in Leicester did not hear the true doctrine of justification by faith. Now, that's going to have a knock-on effect. It's a dumbing down. It's a, it's a denial, really, of some, a key doctrine that needs to be preached clearly and plainly to a congregation. So it's, it's that kind of thing that uh, is going on during his ministry. It's that kind of influence. Mm. Yeah, this is this has been really interesting as we've talked about uh, Robert Hall Jr., especially what we know uh, of his father and some of the other men that we mentioned uh, that he would have been around, Andrew Fuller, William Carey, or not William Carey, uh, but some some of these other influences. It's quite remarkable, uh, this drift so far away from Calvinism. Um, if we transition just a little bit, I would presume that if some of our listeners have a little bit of interest in particular Baptist history in the 18th century, they might know Robert Hall Jr. from his uh, controversies or his uh, teachings on the Lord's Supper, uh, yeah. his view of open communion. Uh, so can you describe Robert, Hall's, Robert Hall Jr.'s advocacy of open communion what were his arguments for holding to this view of the Lord's Supper? And did this that you know of influence other particular Baptists? Yeah, by the time by the time he died and after his death, a lot of people and a lot of churches adopted open communion, and largely because of Hall's, well, it was uh, an he was an ardent advocate. It, it, it's very strange when it comes to the doctrine of the church, the Lord's Supper, of baptism, believers' baptism, Hall became a pragmatist, essentially. He acknowledged that the New Testament taught a, a, a more stricter practice of communion, that those who were baptized, they are the, by, as believers, they are the ones who should come to the Lord's table. But he dismissed that. He, he said that's schismatic, that's divisive. Uh, he wanted to see the unity of all Christians at any cost. So 
baptism became a non-essential. And he promoted uh, open communion vigorously. And he said, those who restrict the table, those are private opinions, those are human inventions. It's schismatic to exclude pedo-baptists. Uh, he said, look, I don't agree with a closed table because you're excluding people when the terms of salvation for them are the same as the terms of salvation for those of a Baptist persuasion. So if it's not the terms of salvation, then you should get rid of these barriers and divisions. Uh, but what happened, of course, after his death, open communion degenerated a step further into open membership. So he, he set he set the ship sailing in a certain direction, and uh, it led to, you know, the breakdown of church discipline and church order. But it was pragmatic, fundamentally. Uh, and I think, therefore, by promoting that, and, pro and then what followed the open membership idea, you know, it further minimized the Calvinistic orthodoxy. It made it more difficult for pastors to say you know who could and who could not come to the table the emphasis was not on then well these these are the this is this is the practice of the church it was put back in the hands of the members of the church they could come if they wanted to <laughs> so it, it but it, essentially it was a pragmatism because he you, you look at the arguments i can't summarize them for you now really there's not time to do so but if you look at his arguments you say, come on, come on, where, where, where can you, where are you getting this from? You know, you're spinning this out of your own brain. Um, you know, he was, he was, well, Fuller, Fuller would have stood firmly against him. Um, I can't think of the guy's name there who stood against him and wrote against him. He was a pastor in Norwich. Um, problem of old age, can't remember names. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the pastor in Norwich, he maintained firmly a, a, a closed table but after his death the church adopted open communion so this was the whole pattern i mean particular baptists were largely closed table but not exclusively because that goes back historically to the difference between john bunyan and uh, william kiffin in the 17th century there was always that and the 1689 Lee doesn't come down hard and fast on that particular issue, but uh, the larger part of particular batches at the end of the 18th century were closed table. But within 50 years, the majority were open table and some went to open membership. The only exception would have been those who parted company and did not become part of the Baptist Union in 1831-32 who became the strict and particular Baptists. Uh, they maintained a Calvinism. They maintained a closed table, but they were in the minority. Hall's arguments won the day. I think there was a great deal of optimism, you know, and, and a, a great movement towards, well, you know, we're all gonna get together. I mean, the modern ecumenical movement loves, loves Robert Hall. 
because he he wanted to break down the barriers and divisions. But uh, that's a different ball game. <laughs> you can leave that to one side. <laughs> this is fantastic. Um... Austin, you know, I've heard it said, if there's anything that we can learn from church history, it's that everybody's influenced by their context and by their relationships. And uh, when we think about relationships with regard to Robert Hall Jr., um, I'm curious, and I, I wonder if some of our listeners would be curious as well, how did particular Baptists that knew Robert Hall Jr., how, how did they maintain friendships as as he as he sort of morphed, I know you said that that Hall Jr. is a moving target, that some of these these struggles that he had, he wasn't necessarily expressing or articulating as clearly as he could have. But what what were some of the friendships that he maintained with particular Baptists of his day? Were there any friendships that he lost as as he went on in his ministry? And are there any valuable lessons maybe that we can glean yeah. from this dynamic? He had a lot of time for John Ryland Jr. Um, and that was basically because of Ryland's piety. Now, this was something was very, very important to Robert Hall, the piety of a person. That mattered more than the person's doctrine. If a man was walking closely with God, and I believe Robert Hall, in his own mind and heart and conscience, was a man who sought to walk closely with God. I'm not doubting for one moment that he was a genuine Christian. I think he was mistaken at some key points, but I think he was a man who walked with God. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of, in, of moral integrity, and providing a person was a pious person, a, a godly man, a, a godly person, Hall would have been friendly with them, whatever their convictions were. So he would include general Baptists uh, within that. But he was, he wrote uh, extensively about John Ryland's piety uh, and spoke very, you know, favorably of the, of the man. So he maintained that. It's interesting, when Andrew Fuller died in 1815, I wonder if the tensions might have increased if Fuller had remained alive. We have no way of knowing, it's hypothetical. Uh, but Fuller would have grown more and more unhappy, I think, with Robert Hall. Um, but Hall, Hall was a man who was prepared to be friendly to anybody and everybody who was godly. He supported William Carey up to the hilt. Uh, but that's the kind of man that he was. Piety mattered more than truth. And I think that's something we, you know, we need to call into question. Uh, I mean, Spurgeon said, you know, you can't have one without the other. Your piety depends on the truth that you confess and believe. Uh, but, you know, none of us are perfect. And, uh, you know, some people live better lives than they are better theologians. <laughs> and that, that's, I think that is, that's probably true of Robert Hall. He was not a good theologian. You know, he did not hold to all the things that we believe are important. 
but he was a godly man and he was a he was a very very powerful and effective preacher but there was there were questions that were asked about that um again i cannot remember who made the observation but it was a man uh, of some standing in the in the particular baptists he said he knew of other preachers who were less gifted than robert hall who drew more sinners to Christ than Robert Hall did, because Robert Hall was putting the truth so high and, and speaking with such oratorical power that the people were just transfixed with the power and not with the content of what he was saying. But you know, he he would maintain friendships with anybody and everybody who showed a party. One of his greatest friends in Leicester was a, an Anglican. And they they promoted the Bible Society, uh, you know, they, they would be seen walking arm in arm down the street toward, to meetings. So that was the kind of man that he was. I think we can learn from that. You know, we, we can maintain friendships with people who don't share all our theological convictions. We may not be able to work together with them, but they are brothers in Christ. And I think we can learn that from, from Robert Hall. You know, I mean, Wesley and Whitfield were poles apart theologically, but Whitfield held Wesley in the highest esteem. You know, you probably know the story about that there. You know, a lady asked uh, George Whitfield, would he see John Wesley in heaven? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, no, he didn't think he'd see him in heaven. And the lady thought, well, that shows you bigotry. And he said, and again, then he gave the reason. He'll be much closer to the throne than I am. And, you know, Whitfield sought to maintain a friendship with Wesley. And I, I think we can learn from Robert Hall. There are things that we can learn from him and say, yeah, well, he sought to maintain friendship with all sorts of Christians. Maybe not on the right basis, but that is what he did. And he was a man of prayer. He was a man of eminent piety. He was upright. He was a righteous man. His zeal and energy as a preacher was incredible. But his oratory was his great strength and perhaps one of his great weaknesses. And people could be carried away by his skills as a public speaker and not really understand what he was saying. He say he put the food too high. You know, Spurgeon used to say, you know, we're to feed the sheep, not feed the giraffes. <laughs> uh, so I think that's, you know, I think that's a positive thing that we can say from Hall. But, you know, there are warnings in our preaching. If we're preachers, we need to be precise and we need to be decisive. We need to proclaim the truth very, very clearly, as simply as we possibly can. But Hall was indecisive. And people could not tell whether he was a Calvinist or whether he was an Arminian, if they had that ability to discern the difference between them. And that was becoming 
less the case as the century, as the 19th century then went on. People lacked that ability to discern. But we need to preach the truth, and we need to preach it decisively and precisely uh, so that people will understand what the Bible says. Uh, you know, when you, when, when, when you open up a text of Scripture, when a preacher does that, you want to be able to go back to that passage and say, now I know what that means. I didn't understand it before. That wouldn't necessarily be the case with Robert Hall after you'd heard him preach. People were just bowled over by his heart. And so it would say things like, never heard anything like it in my life before. But had you asked them, well, what did he say? What, what did he believe? What, what are we meant to take away from this? They'd have been to so taken up with his oratorical abilities that I think they would not be able to take away much biblical truth. So it's, you know, it's, it's sad. I mean, you know, I, 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 I wrote up this book and I investigated this theology because I was concerned to see the decline in Calvinism in the 19th century. You know, by the time Spurgeon came, and Spurgeon was, you know, was, was only a, a few decades, as it were, behind. Uh, he was coming on. You know, by the time he founded the Pastors College in London, he couldn't find Calvinism. That was one of the reasons why he founded it. That's why in 1855, you know, the early years of his ministry in, in uh, the new Park Street, you know, he republished the things most surely believed among us. Because he said, we need, we need to state these things. This is what our forefathers believed. This is a summary of what the scriptures teach. Uh, and that tells you that things have drifted a long way in the previous 50 years of the 19th century. And Hall was a, a player in that decline in that departure, you know, it was a sad day, I think, when he adopted universal atonement. Um, but the doctrine of the universe of, of atonement became a, a real battleground in the 19th century. People ended up denying it was a penal substitutionary atonement. Well, that wasn't Hall's position. Uh, he preached that very clearly, I think, inconsistently, but he preached it. Uh, uh, but you know, it was a. You know, we 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 need we need to preach. You know, the free offer of the gospel. Hall did that, but on the wrong foundation. I want I want to preach a Christ who actually saves, <laughs> and that is something that's not clear in Hall, very clear in Spurgeon, it's very clear in Andrew Fuller, it's very clear in John Ryland but it was not clear in Robert Hall. And I think that's the great danger. Uh, one of the things that we need to learn from him. Hmm. Hmm. I just want to mention that today is February 19th. We're recording on a Monday and multiple times in this conversation, we say that we have said that this, your book is going to release tomorrow. And that's also the time that this episode will release. So as you see, okay. Uh, as you see this podcast come into uh, your feed and you see the title Robert Hall uh, Jr. with Austin Walker, know that his book releases on this same day and we'll make sure to uh, link to the various places where you can purchase this book. You can read it for yourself. Uh, we're thankful for our brother writing this work 
uh, to teach us about Robert Hall Jr. and the undermining of Calvinism and his influence. Uh, but before we conclude this conversation, brother, we want to give you any final opportunity or final thoughts uh, that you might want to share with us about either encouragements, warnings, uh, things that we can learn from the life and theology of Robert Hall Jr. I think the principal thing is, you know, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. That's our final authority. I treasure the confession of faith because I believe it is an accurate summary of what the scriptures teach. I think there are things that could be added to it. It was written in the, you know, in the 17th century. Uh, there are things that now relate to the 20th century, the 21st century, rather, you know, that we need to include there. But, you know, that, that, doctrinal, that doctrinal statement of the 1689, you know, it remains a summary of what the Bible teaches. And churches need to adopt that as their statement of faith. We need to be very clear. There are many churches in, our, in, in this country and there are probably churches in America as well, where there's a minimal, a minimal statement of faith that is not specific. Now, Robert Hall Jr. with Baxter wanted to dismiss confessions of faith. I think that was a disaster. And we need to get back. You know, yes, the Bible is the final authority, but we need to state very clearly what we believe and the biblical basis on which we believe. And churches need to have that as their handbook. And we as preachers need to still preach the distinctive doctrines of what we call Calvinism. The five points, if you want to call it that, but, you know, those things need to be explained. So many of our people live way below their privileges. People we preach to, some of them are downcast, some of them have got doubts and fears and anxieties about all kinds of things. As a pastor, I used to discover that one of the biggest questions my people had was, what happens to me when I die? What is the, what is the basis of my hope? And they didn't always know the answer. Well, what is the answer? Well, the answer is all the counsel of God in the scriptures and, and the distinctive work of Christ, our Savior. We want to preach Christ. We want to make him known. We want to make him known in, in, the, in his all-sufficiency as our Savior. And we need to preach particular redemption. Now, people say, oh, well, you know, that, that creates more problems than it solves. We need to preach election. The same thing is said. Well, go and read Mr. Spurgeon on particular redemption. Read one of his sermons on election, and he will tell you it was never a problem. He never saw it was a problem, hindering people to come to Christ. Never. But we need to learn how to preach these things and to preach them in such a way that sinners are drawn to Christ. You know, at the end of the day, we are preachers of the gospel. We want to see men and women, boys and girls, brought to the Savior. And, um, you know, we need to preach the whole counsel of God in order to do that. And that's 
for me is the tragedy of Robert Holt, that at points he departed from that. As a very timely way to bring an excellent discussion to a conclusion. Brother Austin, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us on the Covenant Podcast. We certainly wish you nothing but the best in your family life and all of your future labors for the glory of God and for the building up of Christ Church. We are very blessed by your scholarship and your faithfulness to God's word and, and to his people. So please press on in all of the labors that our Lord has entrusted to your care. Thank you, brother. It's been an honor and a privilege to join you this afternoon. Absolutely. So, uh, well, it's this morning for you. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's been an honor and a privilege. So thank you very much. Absolutely, brother. And to our listeners, we want to thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless. Mm-hmm.